Today I'm talking with Jane Fonda. Yes, Jane Fonda. Jane is an actor, activist, environmentalist in all equal parts. After several decades on screen and marching in the streets, Jane is more committed than ever to the climate crisis affecting our world today. If you want to take action with Jane, you can visit FireDrillFridays.com. You can also catch the next Fire Drill Friday on July 16th. And right now, you can hear my conversation with Jane Fonda right after this break. Well, hello. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to interview you. You need no introduction, but I give my guests the opportunity to introduce themselves. I would love for you to introduce yourself in whatever way you want to introduce yourself, even though you need no reminding that you are the Jane Fonda. (laughs) I'm very, very happy to be with you on this podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Jane Fonda. I am an actor. I have been for 60 years, um, and I'm an activist, and um, I'm a mother and a grandmother, and, uh, and I'm really excited to be here, and I'm a little nervous. You have oh my goodness! I'm I'm the nervous one. You have nothing to be nervous about. <laughs> I am just like I'm. I'm so excited to talk to you because you are such a strong, um, outspoken activist who happens to be a woman. And I just I, I love what you stand for and how you have never shied away from being outspoken. I just I truly truly admire that. So I'd love to talk to you about what your activism journey has looked like, how it began for you, and you know what is what are you passionate about today, right now? My father was a famous movie star. His name was Henry Fonda, and um, so when I decided, kind of late-ish in life, I didn't grow up wanting to be an actor because my dad ne- never seemed to get much joy from it, and. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like the actors I met. They all seemed too full of themselves. But, you know, I got fired as a director because I wouldn't sleep with my boss. That's a true story. Um, And I just, I didn't know what to do. Anyway, I became an actor. Um, And I was always cast in these little, you know, cheerleading roles and sort of silly things. And I wanted to get out out from under the stereotype that I was being cast in and out, out from the shadow of my father, you know, Henry Fonda's daughter, never quite knowing if I was being hired because of that. And, you know, I just wanted to stand on my own two feet. So I went to France because France was very vibrant in the in the movie making business. It was called the Nouvelle Vague, the New Wave, very interesting directors. And I went there and fell in love with a really hot, director who'd been married to Bridget Bardot before me. And um, so for like the first, I don't know, there was a decade there of a lot of hedonism and not very much meaning. And I will have to admit that I was not very happy with myself. And um, I was searching in a way, but I wasn't really aware of very much. And when I was 30, um, we made Barbarella together. He directed it, and um, I was pregnant. And I and I lived in France. And the Tet Offensive happened in Vietnam, 
And I saw the anti-war demonstrations in this country, and I thought, these people are putting themselves on the line. What the hell am I doing with my life? And I met a bunch of American soldiers who had deserted from Vietnam and come to Paris, and they sought me out. You know, they needed help with everything from doctors to clothes, and they were the ones that opened my eyes to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And at first, I couldn't believe what they told me. Had They had done and they had seen being done, and they gave me a book to read. Books have always been really important in my life. I read a book. It was called The Village of Ben Sook. It was a small book, and when I finished reading it, my life changed. And I basically left my French husband and family and life and moved back to the United States and joined the anti-war movement, working with soldiers, GIs, active duty servicemen who were opposing the war. And that was the beginning of my life as an activist. And everything changed because I found meaning in my life. That's how I became an activist. And once you understand something like the Vietnam War, for example, or patriarchy or or homophobia or whatever it is, if when you really understand it and its roots... Yes. Then it connects to all the other things. And so, you you know, you eventually become um, you become radical. And in the beginning, you become fucking angry. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's yes. just a part of the process, you know, yeah. and you, you know, you're just very, very angry. And then, you know, I'm I'm in my 80s now and I'm much more hopeful in a way and I'm still angry, but I channel it in a more in a more creative and, and I think useful way. Oh, that's beautiful. I feel like ever since I took on more of an activist role in my personal life, the inner growth that I've had, I feel like it's made me a more compassionate person. It's made me broaden my perspectives when looking at people who might be walking in different shoes than I am. And I've definitely found that I've had such a personal transformation since beginning of this journey I wanted to ask you, have you noticed a personal transformation and what is it that you've learned about yourself, if so? Wow. Um, I remember it was 1971 and I was driving across the country. You know, this is when I had left my French family Mm -hmm. and um, moved back here. I had just rented a home on the top of a hill above Beverly Hills I was driving across the country to start filming Clute. And as I was crossing the Rocky Mountains, I had an epiphany. And I said to myself, I don't want to be one of those people who lives on the top of the hill and hands out money to the people who live down in the valley Mm -hmm. to try to help them. Mm -hmm. I want to be down in that valley standing shoulder to shoulder in kinship with those people. And that's what I did. And that's, it's kind of what makes me a little bit different as an activist than, you know, some other celebrities that we know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm down there with, with the people. And mm-hmm. what that does is it opens my heart with empathy. It makes it almost impossible to hate anybody. You can hate people's behavior. You can hate what they do. But it's hard to hate them because you you become you you start to walk in their shoes and you see what they've been through and what they've had to face, and so you're filled with empathy and love, and hate kind of disappears. That's what I find, and I think that's what you've just said too. Yeah, I had this moment in my career where 
I realized that everything I was working on, everything I was doing was not intentional. I mean, kind of intentionally look at me like I'm performing. But if you don't do something with your gift, it feels just like a very self-centered life, especially last year, um, Ahmaud Aubrey. When that happened, that was that that something shook me inside that I was angry, I couldn't sleep, and I was crying in the middle of the night, and I thought, what can I be doing? Because if I'm not doing something with my career, it's just I'm just standing on a stage saying, look at me, and that feels really narcissistic and not cool. But I love what you've been doing in how you've shifted your attention towards the climate crisis. Can you elaborate about that and what you are working on right now? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I've been an environmentalist for many, many, many decades since the beginning of my activism. I've um, it focused a lot on species going extinct and um, air pollution because you know I might when I had my kids they grew up here and and my son has asthma. You know my son. Yes, and I love him. <laughs> yeah, he's such a mensch. <laughs> He's so sweet. It was just all around me. I could see that something was shifting. And I, you know, I was part of marches and protests and things like that. But around 2019, I knew, I knew that things were getting worse and I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was the best way for me to use my, my platform as a celebrity to, to make a difference. I was really impressed by the young climate strikers. You know, the, it was the biggest global uprising that's ever happened in the spring mm. of, of 2019. And I said, God, I've got to figure out what to do. And I read a book. It was Labor Day of 2019. I was up in Big Sur with my friends. And I read a book. See, again, it's a book. <laughs> yes. By Naomi Klein called The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And the way she wrote about Greta Thunberg and Greta's focus as somebody who's on the autism spectrum and realization of what was happening. And I knew that what Greta had, had seen was the truth. And yes. then the way Naomi wrote about the science, it was so clear, very specific. And you know, one thing is, is I'm sure you agree that we learned during the COVID pandemic is pay attention to the science. Yes, absolutely. The science said this is caused by, by fossil fuels. We have to cut our, our fossil fuel emissions in half by 2030. That was in 12 years. They said now it's nine years we have left. And then gradually phase out altogether by the mid-century. So we can't just have windmills and solar panels and all those things if we keep drilling and fracking and mining. Anyway, that book and what I learned from it, I thought, God damn, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move to D.C. and raise a ruckus. Ugh. And I did. <laughs> and we didn't know in the beginning if it was going to work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some old Hollywood ladies coming into town and nobody shows up. But um, it did work. You know, we had really good press and the word got out and people began to come from all over the country, mostly women, mostly older women. And... Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the young activists joined me too, and it, it really, it made a difference. And, um, and then the COVID pandemic hit, and so we took it online. And when I was in DC and they, they said, we have to have a budget for social media, I said, why? 
I didn't even know what Zoom was. I didn't know what Zoom was. And of course, now we've been living on Zoom for 15 months, and we've had 9 million people watching on all platforms, and it's been really successful. So, you know, what I'm trying to do, Demi, is, is raise the awareness of the urgency of this crisis. I mean, it's going to determine we who are alive right now are the yes. ones that will determine whether there's a future for our children and and grandchildren. And this is a huge responsibility. And I want to do all I can to build a small army, a big army, together with other people that can force the government to do what's right. And, you know, Biden is, is, is good. I mean, it's so nice to be hopeful again, but he's not yeah. quite being bold enough, fast enough. Yes, I completely understand what you're what you're saying. I I did want to ask: Did was your granddaughter at those protests? My granddaughter was. My grandson was. My daughter came three times. Uh, um, yes, my you know we rally the troops. My family does. We're all activists. Oh, I love that. My son couldn't come because he had just had a baby. He and his wife Simona just had a little baby. So. <laughs> That's so great. So so what can what can people do to get involved in this fight? Well, I think it's important to know that, you know, what we do individually in terms of um, if you can afford it, driving an electric car or taking a bike instead of driving or trying to get rid of single-use plastics, all those kinds of individual things. Those are important because if you're, if you're trying to address the climate crisis and you're not trying to do something on your own, you feel... You know, it, it doesn't feel right. But even if all of us did what we need to do, it wouldn't scale up fast enough to make the kind of difference that we need. So what's important is to join a movement, join an organization. I mean, you can join Fire Drill Friday. You can go to our website mm -hmm. and go to firedrillfriday.com slash take action. But there's also the Sunrise Movement. There's... um Greenpeace, which is Fire Drill Friday, is part of Greenpeace. There's Extinction Rebellion. There's Zero Hour. There's so many organizations, especially organizations for young people. But you want to join an organization that's that's not afraid of taking action. Yes. You, know, you don't want an organization that's just a lot of white men that take money from the fossil fuel industry, and they're all very smart and everything. But, you know, join an organization that's going to, you know, take action. And when it's safe, get you out in the street. And before that's safe can do it on Zoom. Action is what you want to do. And it feels so good. It's not like eat your broccoli. It's a joyful experience that brings meaning into your life. Mm, I love that. Um, well, speaking of Fire Drill Fridays, you have a segment called Good News. And it's that balance that, that you need that I think is missing in a lot of news cycles. How do you balance the alarm bells with progress being made? I think this is where, you know, it's, it's great to know history. Throughout mm. history, against seemingly insurmountable odds, people organized, taking action together, have won, have changed history. Yes. You know, Boston Tea Party, American Revolution, the Civil Rights Movement in the South, Gandhi winning independence, India's independence from Britain. All of this was done through what are called civil disobedience. It means, you know, there's a lot of bad laws. And if you put yourself on the line, like, for example, black people aren't supposed to eat at a lunch counter. 
Well, they did. They went and sat on the lunch counters and they locked arms and they were arrested. But that's what alerted all the rest of the country to what was happening in the South. And it's what really began to change things. Those actions of those young students, black students sitting in at the lunch counter, for example. That's why when we were in D.C. with Fire Drill Fridays, civil disobedience was an integral part of what we did. We blocked an intersection. We stood on the Capitol steps with posters and banners and chanted, which you're not supposed to do. And we were arrested and it got a lot of media attention. And when you see how successful it can be, as long as there are enough people making a ruckus, it's hard not to be hopeful. You know, my own transformation as a human being was so profound. And I have seen other people so profoundly transform that I can't help but be hopeful. You know, mm. we individually, we can, we can change and become who we were always meant to be. But as a group together collectively, we can change history. And that, that just fills me with hope. It does me too. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Green New Deal, just for people that are tuning in that don't know anything about the Green New Deal. Why is it important? If there were no racism, there would be no climate crisis. If there was no patriarchy, there would be no climate crisis. <sighs> you boil it all down and the roots are patriarchy, racism, colonialism. It's a mindset that creates a hierarchy of humanity with rich white men at the top, mm -hmm. black women at the bottom, or women of color at the bottom. Mm -hmm. They see a tree and they think, flooring, hmm, could be a door. Everything is commodified, animals, nature, human beings. It's what allowed slavery. It's at the root of racism. That's what allows the fossil fuel industry to destroy our planet and our environment with impunity. If we stop the fossil fuel, the burning of fossil fuels, but don't address the mentality that undergirds it, we won't have done what we need to do. We won't have rooted out the, the core of the cancer, you know, that, that, that launched this, this country. So the Green New Deal, what's so beautiful about it, it's a pathway forward that shows us how we can do everything together. We can address a green, sustainable future through solar energy and wind energy and geothermal energy, but it has to begin in the communities that have been the most damaged by fossil fuel pollution. It has to begin with the indigenous people, communities of color. I mean, one hour south of Los Angeles is a community called Wilmington where people are dying of cancer, of lung disease, of heart disease, because the fossil fuel industry is there with their petrochemical plants and refineries and their oil rigs and everything. Those are the communities that have to be addressed first and helped first. And this is what I love about Joe Biden, how he's trying to explain why infrastructure includes childcare. You know, this country is falling apart. There's no way that our infrastructure, our dams and our water systems and sewer systems and the levees in the Gulf South can withstand what's coming. They'll fall apart. And right. we saw it, you know, during Katrina in New Orleans. 
We're going to need tens of thousands and millions of workers to fix it up. They can't go to work if they don't feel that their children are being properly cared for back home, if their elderly ill parents aren't being properly cared for back home. We don't want people to continue to live paycheck to paycheck with such anxiety about how they're going to feed their children and having to go to work even if they're sick and and all that. So what the Green New Deal does is it addresses all of it. And while he's not doing it quite bold enough and fast enough, Joe Biden gets it. And he has started down the right path in terms of addressing everything together, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I really am so grateful to him for that. I do want to backtrack a tiny bit. I loved what you said about the patriarchy being at the pinnacle of the problem for everything else that we have on this planet, because it really is the truth. I think that when you oppress so many other people in order for one demographic to rise, there is going to be an imbalance in the environment and in the economy everywhere. I, I keep trying to you know, tell all of my friends, it's the patriarchy. When did that come to you, the realization that patriarchy uh, is at the root of it? It was, I think it came in two tiers for me. I think the first tier was going to a friend's poetry slam show that I identified so profoundly with because they were talking about not conforming to genders and identifying um, not as male or female. And when I heard their, their take on that, I identified with it so much that I thought to myself, ooh, there's something here. There's something that I've never known about my entire life, but it's clicking now. And I need to research this. I need to do more work. I need to sit with it. So I did. I sat with it for over a year. And the more I sat with it, the more research I did. The reasoning behind me cutting my hair off was because I was shedding all of the gender norms that had been placed on me growing up female in this world. And I just always found that men were at the root of pushing their agendas on me to be a sexy pop star, to whatever would make other people the most money. And, 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 and I had to break that mold because I had to find the freedom for myself in order to survive, like to live. I came to a really close near-death experience in 2018 and that for me was the wake up call for me to start living my life because it there was a voice inside of me that said, you're not living. And if you don't start living your life for you, it's going to be your demise. So I woke up and I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to live my truth. And no matter who it scares, no matter who in the patriarchy it shakes, I'm going to live my truth for me. Um, you're getting emotional and I'd love to to hear from you what's going on. <laughs> well, uh, you know, what you're saying is so brave. Thank you. Um, it's so, so brave. I wish I could hug you right now. Um, oh, I wish I could hug you too. Yeah, we will. Yes. Actually, I have hugged you. Yes, at the, at the march. And we will hug again. I'm so glad to hear you say all this, Demi. I'm just so proud Thank of you. you and I'm so glad and I, I admire it so much. I'm, I'm so glad that you came out of that because I've, I've seen the documentary I, that you came mm -hmm. out of that with that realization and that you... you um, you know, that you're finding your 
your real truth and 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 it's just wonderful it's just thank wonderful you. yeah oh thank you thank oh, you goodness <laughs> you're, you're, I do I did you you gave me full body chills I just oh that means everything coming from you I just I also do want to lighten the mood for a quick second I saw this meme that circulated online and you <laughs> you said the one time that a man would have come in handy was to take my dress off from the event. <laughs> Actually, there are two times. One was when I sat on a cactus and I couldn't see the pull the, the cactus, the needles out of my butt. Oh no. And the other was where I couldn't friggin' unzip my hundred pound dress, beaded yeah. dress. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that that sent me. I was I was dying. And I thought, you know what? She gets it. <laughs> she gets it. And I, ne I need to know her better. The first four acts in your documentary actually were titled after uh, the influential men in your life. But then the last chapter changed. I would love to hear about what that represented for you and... Because I, I have a feeling I know, but I would love to hear it in your words. I try to make this as short as possible. Um, <laughs> you know, I was born in the late 30s and I adored my father, um, who uh, was very difficult to... Did you see... I don't know if you've seen On Golden Pond, but the character that he played in On Golden Pond in relation to the character that I played, Chelsea... That's kind of the way he was, you know, it, partly it was generational, but I adored him and I just wanted him so much to love me. And as I got older, you know, I, I wasn't thin enough for him and I, I was I was too angry for him. And, you know, so I kind of put myself into this box and you don't just get over it when you enter your 20s pleasing a guy. I mean, boy, I should win Oscars for how I can become whatever the man wants me to be. And I went through three wet marriages <laughs> like that. And, wow. um, but I always knew that this isn't really who I am. Well, then who am I and what am I supposed to be? And I ended up always feeling, I'm so claustrophobic. I've got to break out and take the next step and go. And then, then I'd make the same mistake over and over and over until finally. And it was in my 60s. You know, I'm the proof that it's never too late. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you're a late bloomer, just don't miss the flower show. <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> that I finally was single and I was, I started to become who I was meant to be. And But it takes work, as you know well. You can, It doesn't just happen, it takes, it takes work. And um, it's hard to know where you, to go if you don't know where you've been. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what had gone wrong earlier on so that I wouldn't keep making the same mistakes. And it just I, gets better the older I get. Isn't that weird? It's not what I expected at all. Oh, honey, that is me all the way. I was engaged to a man last year, and I thought that my life today would look very different, but now I have an inch of hair and new pronouns and I'm single and living in the most colorful queer house that I could have imagined for myself. And I'm so happy. <laughs> and I have friends that are happy for me. And, and you know, there's, there's very few straight men that I have in my life today, but the ones that I do are wonderful and they're supportive of lifting my voice up and making me feel experienced and heard 
rather than, hey, be smaller. Because I get that too. I was, I tried to shrink myself to make myself more digestible for the rest of the planet. And that's just not who I am. And that's not who you are either. And so, yes, if it takes us a while, if it takes time, that's fine. At least we get it at some point. Don't give up. Yes, I will not. And I won't if you won't. I'm saying it to you, but also to your audience. Don't give up. Yes. Keep going. Keep growing. Keep evolving and become who you were meant to be all along. And it could, it could take many decades. So what? So what? Yes. Just as long as, as long as you make it to the flower show. Yes. Right. When it comes to feminism and your journey, you said that it took you a while and that you were a late bloomer. Um, what do you mean by that? And is it just the messaging behind feminism that you were late to, or were there other things that you felt like you were a late bloomer to? Well, I was, I was always in a marriage. Right. <laughs> or with lovers. There was always yes. a man, right? Yes. And they weren't all necessarily authentic relationships. Yes. But I always would just twist myself into a pretzel. By the way, I was bulimic the entire time, okay, on top mm -hmm. of everything else. So it was definitely not, not authentic. And mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to be an embodied feminist when you're in inauthentic relationships. I, I read all the right books. I knew all the right people. I made movies that were woman-centric, and I was a feminist in my head, right? And I, you know, I, I know the moment that that changed. I was single, finally. And I went to see Eve Ensler, the author of the Vagina Monologues. It was one of the last times that she performed the entire, all the monologues herself. And a friend of mine insisted that I go. And have you ever seen the Vagina Monologues? You know what? I haven't, but I was just thinking while you're saying it, it's time. <laughs> it's time for me to listen, watch, whatever. Yeah. Some of the monologues are tragic and you cry. Some of them are hysterically funny. And it was during the funny ones when I was laughing, because that's when your guard is down. Right. That I swear my feminism moved from my head into my body and I became an embodied fan. I got it. I got it. It has nothing to do with not liking men or anything like that. It has to do with becoming a whole person, standing on your own two feet and um, demanding to be seen and cherished and safe. That's what, it, what I realized it was. You're explaining to me the exact moment that I had at my friend's poetry show because it was me sitting in the audience laughing hysterically. And they, they talk about how they could hear my laugh from the stage because I have this like really big belly laugh. And when I feel it, oh, you hear my laugh <laughs> from a mile away. But it was that humor. You're right. It was the humor and the, the wit and the, the wisdom that was put into the humor that made everything make sense. And I, th I thought, wow, that's so profound and it's clicking and it's scary. And that's exactly the experience that I had. So I'm excited. If it gets performed someplace where you are, make a point to see it. Okay, definitely. I absolutely will. What do you remember laughing about, though? I want to ask, Just was there a specific moment that made you laugh? 
Well, it was, it was, it made me laugh and cry. It's a monologue. It's called The Flood. And it, it's about a woman who, um, when a man was engaging in foreplay with her, had an orgasm and she was sitting in his car, his very nice white leather car, and mm-hmm. she ejaculated mm-hmm. on her dress and on the car seat. And he took her home and never wanted to see her again. <gasps> and and so that traumatized her so much because she kept having fantasies. And so the monologue talks about her fantasy. She's sitting at a table at a restaurant and suddenly, you know, she starts to ejaculate and the restaurant <laughs> begins to fill up with her fluids and Frank Sinatra <laughs> floats by and the waiter floats by. And it's just... And then, you know, she got so traumatized that she ended up, you know, putting a sign there saying, close due to flooding. And I'm, I'm not doing a good job of, it, of telling it, but it was extremely poignant and, um, and very, very funny. And, and that was one of the ones that really, that really got to me. Wow. You know what that just sounds like to me? That sounds like a man intimidated by the female body. No kidding. And... I could get into a whole other conversation about how relationships with men have felt performative for me. They have felt not totally fulfilling, and that's why I don't see my life settling down with a man anymore. Um, But yeah, oh my God, that's a perfect example of that in itself. Oh, that's so frustrating. Well, I just wanted to tell you, I've had the most incredible time speaking with you. And I would love to see you outside of this Zoom call and give you another hug. But before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you, you know, uh, the reason why I call this show 4D with me, Demi Lovato, I, I call it 4D because I want to have conversations that transcend the typical discourse that are going to hopefully elevate humanity and our consciousness into the next dimension because that's what we need to ascend into the next dimension is to raise our consciousness and our vibrations what does living in the fourth dimension mean to you i'm a big believer in taking leaps of faith i have done that most of my adult life it's my main form of exercise these days big leaps of faith (laughs) and what you're leaping into is a void. You know, you're not sure exactly what it is, but um, you're brave enough to take the leap because if you don't take the leap, then life can become shallow and inauthentic and you get hollowed out, you know. Mm-hmm. And from my experiences, when you are hollowed out because you're not being authentic, you haven't been willing to enter that void that's when addictions start to come in. You need to fill the hollowness. T. That to me is what higher power is. It means what you fill the hollowness with, spirit, a sense of connectedness to things that are bigger than you. And activism, um, certainly, and being authentic has filled my hollowness. Um, but it's being willing to take a leap of faith into the void that for me, that is the fourth dimension. And it's the void is fertile. It's where the tendrils of something new begin to sprout. And if you surrender to it, 
and don't numb yourself with busyness or addictions, um, that's when you begin to really grow. And I think it's profound that you named your podcast 4D. And it augurs well for you, Demi. I think it's going to be your fertile void where you oh, discover what you want, whatever it is you want to discover. Thank you. You're, you have me thinking of tattoo ideas, <laughs> like a void, like I, uh, that was so visual and descriptive and, and, and it resonated with me so much. So thank you so much. Um, is there any wisdom that you would want to pass on to young women, young people, Gen Z, millennials? What, what wisdom would you like to pass on to them? Because they are the future of our planet. They are. We have to fight for that future. Well, I guess, you know, I, I think about two things that I would have said to myself when I was that age. One of them is, no is a complete sentence. Yes! And the other is, it's more important to stay interested than to be interesting. Stay interested, curious, searching, evolving, instead of trying to be fascinating and interesting. Mm -hmm. More important wow. to be interested than interesting. But you know what makes you interesting is that you are interested and that you're curious and that you're still so open to learning. And I think that it's that empathy that makes you such an incredible human. And I just thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge on this podcast and I'm just, it was an honor. So thank you. For me too, Demi. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I hope we do see each other in real life. Yes, me too. And send Troy my love. I will. Thanks. Okay. Bye. This has been a presentation of OBB Sound, SB Projects, and Cadence 13. 4D with Demi Lovato is hosted and executive produced by me, Demi Lovato. Executive produced by Michael D. Ratner. Scott Ratner, Elias Tanner, Scooter Braun, Scott Manson, James Shen, Jen McDaniels, Scott Marcus, Chris Corcoran, produced by Grace Delia, associate produced by Caitlin Plummer, Chloe Borenstein-Lowey, edited by S.R. Meredith, Danielle Billiou, Ryan Dayhoff, mixed and mastered by Chris Basil, production support from Arlen Konopaki, Kia Rigabi, Paige Himson, Sean Cherry, Serena Reagan. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. This has been a presentation of OBB Sound, SB Projects, and Cadence 13. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes available now on Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.